you unlock this door with a key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Caleb Bouget. And welcome to the Filmgasm podcast. Today's episode is the divisive and controversial 1983 anthology film, Twilight Zone, the movie. Four segments directed by some of the best cult film auteurs of the 70s and 80s. Uh, Structure today is going to be a bit different as we're going to treat each segment like its own little movie. Uh, This was my pick of the cycle. I've wanted to talk about this movie for quite some time. There is a very dark cloud looming over this film in the shape of a tragic accident to claim the lives of three people. Uh, And we are going to talk in depth about that. Uh, Austin and I had mentioned it briefly when we did an American Werewolf in London uh, last year, I believe, last uh, January. Uh, Another John Landis movie. Uh, A lot of people, including myself, see him as primarily culpable uh, with this situation, but we'll get into that. Um, but first, the Twilight Zone. We got to talk about the source material, a show that had more impact on the development of horror than maybe anything else. Rod Serling's Immortal Classic series. The Twilight Zone first aired in 1959 on CBS. It was developed by Rod Serling, who served as executive producer and head writer. He wrote or co wrote 92 of the show's 156 episodes and also served as the narrator and host of the series. It lasted five seasons until it ended in 1964 and was the jumping-off point for a lot of future cult actors and cult writers. Uh, It was revived three separate times, once in 1985, where it lasted until 1989 with no regular host, again in 2002, hosted by Forrest Whitaker, which lasted one season, and finally again in 2019, hosted by Jordan Peele, lasted two seasons uh how familiar are you with the twilight zone have you dug into this show oh yeah my mom used to watch it whenever sci-fi channel would do its marathons mm. i'd seen a lot of the episodes and actually i remember the, the talking tina episode and the one where there's the wax figures in the basement that would come to life and kill people <laughs> scary the living shit out of me as a kid so i always <laughs> grew up seeing the show and i really as I got older, I started to appreciate more film and wanting to see what this is. Really fell in love with this show. And um, you know, I've seen the original one, which I love. I have seen a little bit of the Forrest Whitaker one, which I thought was okay. I did watch the Torn Pill produced one in, in its entirety, which was also pretty hit and miss. Just uh, nothing's really touched with that original show's done. I think the closest I got was actually this movie, watching this movie very recently. Yeah, you know, the dark cloud. The movie probably got the closest because yeah, this show to me is just so un. It hasn't been topped in any of the incarnations they've done for it. I think it's because it was so original at the time. Rod Serling's, you know, the voice and the cigarette and just his presence brought something to this. It just made it feel like this. You were like literally looking through the door of another dimension. Like it's just he. You bought it. I don't know what it is. And it's they still hold up. These episodes, some of these are so creepy and way ahead of their time. Uh, 
I recently, well, not recently, it's about a year ago now. Actually, two years. Jesus, I forgot about the COVID blank year where nothing happened. Um, it was the 50th or 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. And me, my grandpa, and my uncle, three generations of my family, went to a screening of five Twilight Zone episodes and then a documentary on Rod Serling and his process. And it was so cool. I A couple of those I'd seen before. Some of them were first-time watches. And it was just a really cool moment where my grandpa realized that, you know, three separate generations of his family had been raised on this show and it meant something to all of us. Uh, you know, like I said, I think this show has done more for horror than anything in pop culture. I mean, it brought it into the mainstream. It gave people a chance to create horrific stories and they still are just so unnerving. I mean, you mentioned talking Tina, Holy shit, there never would have been a Chucky had there not been a talking Tina. Like, this was the, you know, the groundwork. This was the foundation for so much. Well, then what the show did help do something uh, for horror stories, like the idea of social commentaries. Um, Because at the end of the day, a lot of the, these episodes aren't necessarily about what you're seeing on a surface level. There's usually so, nine times out of ten, Rod, certainly there's something else being said. It's being used to talk about something deeper. Um, I forget the name of the episode, but the one where they are on the street with the aliens was being invading, they keep blaming each other. Like Monsters on Maple Street, I think. There you go. Yeah, really good episode, but it's, you know, that plot's more so about American greed and, like, betrayal and things like that. You know, it's yeah. not necessarily about... The episode's about Thalian and what's going on and this little street, you know, freaking out, but something deep was being said. And that's, I think, a big reason it's lasting. And really, it's probably biggest legacy to horror and sci-fi as well, is um, you can have this type of entertainment and it be something more than what's on the surface. Yeah, Serling had definitely had a lot of things he wanted to say. Uh, the documentary that I got to see really talked about what he believed in and what he wanted to do with this show. He didn't just want to scare people. He wanted to make them think. He wanted to make people reconsider their beliefs on things. And, you know, like Maple Street is all about the Red Scare and communism and our distrust of one another. There is no alien. <laughs> There's no monster. It's just, you know, a down satellite like turn this neighborhood against one another and there's no going back. It's it's so brilliant. And it's all in just like 20 minute increments. <laughs> It's really remarkable. It's, it lasted, you know, five seasons and there's been attempts to bring it back, but no one's ever been able to, to do it the way he did it. Well, I think because people missed the point of it. Again, they missed that social commentary point to it. I think the closest they got to me was the most recent edition with Jordan Pill. That's yeah. just because Jordan Pill, he does that with his movies to begin with. He's very much a social commentary conscious director. So it's like that matches him to do the show. Oh, yeah. But again, even then, to me, it's so very hit and miss. Um, they, I think the first season they did for the third attempt, a third try, you know, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. And it's part, it's honestly my least favorite one out of the three. Cause I've seen all, I've seen, you know, the original episode with the movie. We'll go into detail on the one in the movie. And that one is probably, his is probably my least favorite. I remember uh, watching, uh, that documentary finding out that that episode nightmare at 20,000 feet, the budget got slashed to hell and they had so little to work with. And they were able to use like the interior of a plane 
Like they were able to build that and they got a gremlin suit. It's just like a goofy, you know, fuzzy suit with a weird face. And they created <coughs> pure nightmare fuel <laughs> that still is unnerving to watch. Uh, so I figured like we could just kind of rap about some of our favorite episodes for a bit, kind of just celebrate the twilight zone before we get into the, the stigma. Uh, I'd like to start with this. I don't know the title of this episode, but I saw this a long time ago. My dad had a disc that had five episodes on it. And I remember most of those episodes. It was a guy who had just robbed a bank and the cops found him and, and gunned him down. And he woke up in the afterlife with this angel who tells him like, Hey, the world, you know, you're dead. And now you get to do whatever you want. So enjoy. And he's like, all right, cool. So he starts, you know, he goes to the Heaven's Casino and he wins every time. He scores with every girl he, you know, he wants. He, every robbery goes successful and he hates it. He hates the complete lack of conflict. Everything, he wins everything. There's no point. And he tells the guy like, look, this is not what I want. This life is meaningless now. Like, Heaven sucks. Take me to the other place. And the guy's like, don't you get it, kid? You're, you're in the other place. <laughs> Like you lived a shit life. You were a bank robber. You're in hell, buddy. Get used to it. <laughs> and it, it's, I thought that was so cool. The misdirect and the buildup and just his, like the, the angel being revealed to be a demon and his cackling of like, ah, I got you as a kid. That was like eerie. Uh, I would say outside of the two I mentioned earlier, that were like long time favorites of mine because they freaked me out so much. Another one that always kind of stuck with me, and it's because because I'm a reader. It's a guy that just I forget the again. I'm going to forget the name of the episodes because it's been you know it's been so yeah. long. But yeah, it's the one with the guy who just wants to read and he hates dealing with people. He finally like at the end of the episode gets his wish and everyone's gone. And he has the whole library to himself and he breaks his fucking glasses <laughs> and can't read. <laughs> there was time now. Oh god. That that episode, I'm not kidding, was a uh, partially my mom's. Uh, it was it was part of her. It influenced her decision to get LASIK surgery because <laughs> my mom's always had horrific vision, and she's always kind of, you know, worried about that. Like, you know, if her glasses break and she doesn't have contacts, like that's it. She can't see. <laughs> and I just, it's it's one of those things. You know, it's such a human fear of. And it's such a reasonable fear of just, you know, losing your glasses and you're fucked. If you can't get new ones, that's just who you are. So yeah, that, that got into a lot of people's heads. <laughs> that was good. I liked uh, this one I saw at the, at the screening. It was uh, very simple. It's uh, an alien ship lands in a farmhouse and terrorizes this woman. And the woman fights back against these tiny aliens in this little ship. And they're terrified. They're like, there's a giant. What do we do? And they, I, the uh, aliens make it to the roof and they signal their home planet. And you realize that the aliens are actually astronauts from Earth who have landed on this planet full of giants. <laughs> and it was like, oh, shit. Ah, God, he was a genius. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think another good one I remember was uh, when this uh, really rich dude is uh, passing or I think he died but he gets all his relatives to come to the mansion but he makes them wear a mask before they enter and the big reveal is so you have to keep it on the whole time and at the end when someone takes it off 
their face looks exactly like the mask. I think I remember that. That's, that sounds familiar. Ooh, yeah, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. I always tend to do, uh, very, for obvious reasons, I tend to gravitate towards those like really creepy episodes. Oh, yeah. Like, remember Eye of the Beholder when the woman's getting facial reconstructive surgery and they take off the bandages and she's beautiful, but to this world, she's ugly and everyone looks like big people? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ah, my, uh, my all-time favorite was so simple, but so brilliant. It was this, um, this ship crash landed on an asteroid and the two astronauts are like, what do we do? There's no, we can't contact earth. There's no food. We got to do something. We got to start looking for water and they start getting, you know, testy. And one of the guys snaps and kills the other guy and he keeps walking. And as he starts walking, he gets, he realizes, uh, what's really going on when he gets to a sign that says like, welcome to Utah. Like they didn't crash land on an asteroid. They crash landed in the desert and they've been on earth the whole time. And this guy's going to prison for murder. (laughs) Oh, every time I get talking about this, I want to throw it on and just watch the the twilight zone. All right. I need to pick up that, that really convenient, like uh, set they came out with recently. It's like all the seasons in one thing. Yeah. I love that it's so it's still so relevant that it keeps getting remastered and redeveloped into you know Blu-ray and 4K. Like these are never going away. This is one of the definitive television shows that defines American culture. It's gonna be in our in our minds forever. Mm. Beautiful. Uh, any other episodes you wanted to spotlight before we get into the the meat of today? Not that I can remember on the spot. I'm sure, of course, I'll have that moment. Like, oh, yeah, that episode. But I, on the spot right now, no, not that I can remember. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that was fun. I, I love this show. Um, so Twilight Zone, the movie, has an IMDb score of 6.5, Rotten Tomatoes score of 58%. Despite the uh, dark cloud, the film was a moderate success, grossing $42 million on a $10 million budget. However, it's since become pretty taboo in Hollywood and no real attempt to make another one or even give this film a decent re-release has ever come to fruition. It's pretty much tainted. Uh, no one will touch this. And for, for good reason. It drags up a lot of bad memories for a lot of people. Uh, it is interesting that they still released the movie. I mean, that would never happen today. You know, we, we, we're just seeing now with the, the situation on the Rust set that that movie is completely buried. That, that movie's never coming out. They're never going to finish it. It's dead. And in the 80s, a helicopter fell on a character actor and two children. And they still made the movie still came out and did well. How things change, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, I personally, I, I'm, I'm with the movie coming out. And um, if you can't handle knowing what's in, that's fine. Like, you do not have to watch the movie. I completely understand. For I understand, the scenes that the scene in question is not in the movie. Like, that's, I think, how they got around it. They were like, take the scene out. Do not put that scene in the movie. Do not bother with it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so they worked. They, I think that's how they got away with it. I don't know in the case of Rust what's going to happen ultimately. But it does look like it's probably not be coming out anytime soon. Well, we saw, you know, a few years ago that movie about the uh, they were making a movie about the Almond Brothers, and that stunt person got killed in the, in the train accident, and that movie was immediately scrapped. So I don't. I think these days, 
it's just considered in its bad taste to still release the movie. And it's, you know, legally the, the, the families, I'm sure there's a lot of civil suits going on. It's just, they don't need the additional bad press and no, but, and it will be condemned. It would not make money. Not these days, you know, it's, it's just not society's changed. I think for the better in some ways, but also, you know, maybe not, I don't know. It's, it's not really easy to, to kind of pinpoint that. Yeah. It, the whole thing's messy. Cause I, I stand by that. Like, and we'll get more into it. But I stand by that. Like you can't really just put your blame on one person. Cause movies are collaborative effort. There's a lot of people involved. There were things, you know, there's other people involved with that. The helicopter crash, I decided not to tell awareness things that would have caused them a little bit of like a second concern. They kept it to themselves. Yeah. Um, they just like, yeah, we want some, we'll be fine. And, you know, if he was to say, if they had told Landis, like, hey, we have this issue, he would be like, all right, then let's hold up. And you had a movie studio that was pressing to get the film done. Like, there's a lot of things that people don't take into account that are just getting forced. Um, and same with, like, Rust and the other movie <coughs> about the Holman Brothers. Like, there's so many people involved that just, that's why they tell you, <coughs> sorry, that's why they tell you movie says, don't be the person with a secret. Like, um, and again, they said in this case for this movie, like, everyone has the right to your cut. So anyone involved in this movie specifically could have said cut, could have said something they didn't. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of that was, you know, John Landis had a reputation for being kind of a control freak, for being kind of difficult, for being kind of an angry person on set. So I'm sure a lot of that was fear of being, you know, just having a your career get a little sabotaged potentially. But even then, you should have so had the boss to just not worry about that. If oh, someone's, yeah. someone's life is more important than someone's reputation for how they are as a director. 100%. I agree with you. I, just, I, I, I don't think it was the right call at all. But I think it does explain why nobody said anything. Uh, ugh, yeah, this is a this is a, this is a dark episode. This is a, a dark event in Hollywood. It's a very touchy subject even today. That's why no one's ever gone back to Twilight Zone the movie. I know a while back, a few years ago, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio bought the film rights and wanted to do it again, and no one would back him. Like it just didn't yeah. happen. They came out with a Blu-ray, and now it's hard to get, but there was a Blu-ray for a time that came out for people to grab. Yeah, I've been trying to hunt that down. I like this movie, despite everything, and I, I do want it to have, like, a decent release and be kind of, you know, have a chance, because, you know, like, take, you know, George Miller and uh, Joe Dante, for instance. They had nothing to do with this. They had nothing to do with the events that transpired, but their, you know, their piece of the movie got buried, too. Yeah, I just I don't think that's fair. Spielberg, because Spielberg directed one of the segments. Yeah, I did find out he got um he got arrested as a producer, but I don't think I don't think that's fair. Uh, we'll get into it. Mm. So, so Twilight's in the movie was really developed by Spielberg and Landis. Uh, this was kind of their baby. They were fans. They wanted to do a Twilight Zone movie. Uh, so with that, let's get into the movie. Uh, we begin with the prologue called Something Scary appropriate uh we see two friends possibly recent acquaintances i always get the vibe that Ackroyd's a hitchhiker it was probably uh, a hitchhiker situation that's what it felt like yeah uh they're driving on a dark road you know singing credence the midnight special has been a mainstay on every uh halloween music mix i've made since i saw this movie it's such an eerie song because of this movie um 
and they're just driving along, listening to the Creedence talking about show tunes. And then the Twilight Zone comes up and they start reminiscing about some of their favorite episodes. It's a great way to start this movie. Just, you know, it's what we all do whenever the Twilight Zone comes up. I and mean, we did it just now. We talk about our favorite episodes. It's one of those shows. It's like everybody's seen at least one, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, this segment was also directed by John Landis. Oscar nominee Albert Brooks plays the driver. Brooks was nominated for his performance in 1987's Broadcast News. He was also in Taxi Driver, Defending Your Life, Drive, The Simpsons Movie, and Finding Nemo as the voice of Marlon, which is how most people know him. You hear that voice, it's immediately like, oh, that's Marlon. (laughs) Uh, (coughs) And I think it's brilliant to have two mostly, you know, two people mostly known for their comedy to lull you into a false sense of security, make you think you're safe. It's very smart. Oh, yeah. It works really well because you do get lower. You're like, oh, hey, Dan Aykroyd. And... Yeah. Oh, Dan no, Aykroyd won't hurt me. It's Ray. He saves me from the ghosts. He, he's fine. <laughs> he gets blowjobs from ghosts. He's okay. Yeah. Nobody getting a blowjob from a ghost could be a bad guy, right? <laughs> Which is, that's a great thing to put on a t-shirt. Anyway, um, Oscar nominee Dan Aykroyd plays the passenger. And if you want to know a bit more about Aykroyd's career, who I feel like I've been talking about a lot lately, uh, check out our recent episode on Ghostbusters. Uh, yeah. And these two guys are just, you know, driving along, driving along. And uh, all of a sudden, Aykroyd decides to ask his new buddy, hey, you want to see something really scary? Iconic line that has been on movie, you know, quote of the month calendars. It's It's become just associated with, fear and it's great because brooks is like yeah all right he's like pull over come on pull over trust me and it is pants shittingly terrifying what what happens you don't expect it the first time you see this you don't know what's going to happen you do not expect Aykroyd to turn into like a leopard demon and eat albert brooks uh, i remember watching like this and when we talk about the first man's opening it's like you can tell like and i was telling josh about this actually when i was talking about the movie this is my first time seeing the movie the whole way through. I've only seen bits and pieces of this movie. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, you know, it's like they made they did such a good job of so making it a Twilight Zone movie, but taking advantage of being a movie in its in the title, right? Like they can get away with more than what they can on TV, especially when Twilight Zone's coming out with the Haze Code era. So yeah. it's um they and you and they do it right off the bat, like at the very top with this this scene right here, because it's like, oh, you know, you're going in thinking, oh, Twilight Zone, this is going to be fine. We can take our kids to go see it. Nothing bad will happen in this. And then that happens, and you're like, fuck, we still got an hour and 44 minutes of this movie. This thing is rated PG. <laughs> this is PG? This is PG. Did they even watch, like, that opening segments, like, first 10 minutes? There's so many things in this movie that warrant an R rating. And it never got it. And this is a year before PG-13 showed up. I wonder if this is a movie that possibly influenced that. Um, you mentioned the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code tended to go away in the early 60s. And that was more towards movie. TV has always been heavily monitored by the uh, by the FCC. Yeah, and, I mean, or standards and practices, whatever the fuck they want to call yeah. themselves. So it is kind of incredible that Serling was able to kind of just squeak by their incredibly regulated standards and develop these these shows that have lasted forever. Uh, he, oh, I did want to mention, he did do a revival kind of secondary show called Night Gallery in the 70s. It didn't quite measure up, but still has its, its fan base. 
Because I've heard a lot from a lot of people who actually really stand by that show. Yeah, I've got like my my uh, my family is all Twilight Zone nerds. Like seriously, like it's crazy. And uh, I've been groomed over the past few years to like take a you know to continue the legacy of loving the Twilight Zone. <laughs> the night galleries come up. I haven't quite checked out. I haven't really checked out Night Gallery, but I, I will. Uh, so after the monster takes out Albert Brooks, it's still, I've seen this a, a, a dozen times. That's, that scene still gets under my skin. Every time I'm like, ugh. Yeah, I got under my I was like, that was not what I was expecting in my Twilight Zone movie. Oh, but it's just, it's Dan Aykroyd so, you know, cheery. He's like, you're going to like this. this yeah, check this out. It's going to be good. And then you just, ugh, it's so out of fucking nowhere. <laughs> Oh, it's one of my favorite scares I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, um, <laughs> it's great. Um, and then we get the traditional, you know, you've entered the you know doorway to imagination narration. And it's cool. It's done by Burgess Meredith, who was the guy who lost his glasses in that episode. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's been in a couple Twilight Zones. This was a big, uh, he was in a few of those. And it was so it was a really cool get that he did that uncredited. Uh, yeah, so cool. That is cool. Good for him. Yeah. So that takes us to the first segment called Time Out, uh, which was directed by John Landis, who also directed Trading Places, Coming to America, The Blues Brothers, Animal House, and An American Werewolf in London. Now, outside the 80s, not really much else. Uh, this movie kind of, you know, well, this and the impending trial really tainted his uh, reputation. Uh, Time Out stars Vic Morrow as Bill Connor, a grumpy racist who gets to experience real prejudice and racism firsthand as he's transported to Nazi Germany as a Jew, the deep American South as a black man, and the jungles of Vietnam as one of the Viet Cong during the war. It's a very brilliant idea. Uh, this is the only original segment of the movie. All the other, the other three segments were based on existing episodes. This is the only one that's uh, original. Yeah. Uh, Prior to his final performance in this movie, uh, Vic Morrow was a character actor who had appeared in such films as The Bad News Bears, Humanoids from the Deep, and 152 episodes of the series Combat as Sergeant Saunders. Uh, I haven't seen Combat, but it was a big show in the 60s. Uh, and tragically, Morrow was killed in a freak accident on the set of this film. So before we talk about the actual segment, let's talk about this. Uh, I have an article here from History.com. Uh, actor and two children killed on Twilight Zone set from July 23rd, 1982. Uh, <laughs> so this is what happened. We'll lay out the facts and then we'll discuss our thoughts on these on what happened, okay? Yeah. On July 23rd, 1982, Vic Morrow and two child actors, Renee Shin Chen and Micah Din Lei, are killed in an accident involving a helicopter during filming on the California set of Twilight Zone, the movie. I should mention these kids were six and seven years old. Uh, Morrow, age 53, and the children were shooting a Vietnam War battle scene in which they were supposed to be running from a pursuing helicopter. Special effects explosions on the set caused the pilot of the low-flying craft to lose control and crash into the three victims. The accident took place on the film's last scheduled day of shooting. This was an afterthought scene. They weren't going to have this. They thought Vic Morrow's character needed some sort of redemption. So they had him save some Vietnamese kids. And this scene was hastily put together. A lot of corners were cut. 
And well, we all know what happened. Uh, Twilight Zone co-director John Landis and four other men working on the film, including the special effects coordinator and the pilot, were all charged with involuntary manslaughter. Uh, according to a 1987 New York Times report, it was the first time a film director faced criminal charges for events that occurred while making a movie. Um, as we've seen recently, it, it was not the last. Um, during the subsequent trial, the defense maintained the crash was an accident that could not have been predicted, while the prosecution claimed Landis and his crew had been reckless and violated laws regarding child actors, including regulations about their working conditions and hours. These kids were there illegally. Uh, Kids are not allowed to, to film, and I don't know if it's still the, the stature. It probably is, but kids are not allowed to film after hours. Like there's a certain amount of hours kids are allowed to work on a film set, you know, child labor laws and all that. It's right. still very much the rule. Um, I think I heard a story where like Robin Williams, and this was in like the late '90s, maybe early 2000s. Yeah, so they were trying to film a scene late, and he shut it down. He's like, "No, these kids are going home." I remember that. That was on uh, Jumanji. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, good. I'm glad it's still the thing. Landis insisted like, Hey, we'll go, if we, we can't get kids through the union, we'll go find kids, which is really fucked up. And he found these two Vietnamese kids and he did it anyway. Uh, everyone on set knew this was not kosher. Uh, nobody stepped up. Yeah. Well, no one stepped up and, you know, I'm, and look, I'm not saying like, you know, Landis did a lot of wrong as well. Um, but like I said, no one spoke up and, the it says um, I'm also looking at like an article myself with the associate producer George Halsey Jr. Um, as I'm going to read it verbatim. Okay. Told the children's parents not to tell any firefighters on set that the children were part of the scene, and also hid them from a fire safety officer who also worked as a welfare worker. So that's why I say when people are like it's all John Lance, I'm like I'm not saying he isn't free of anything here. He he did do some wrong, but other people were also just as wrong. So it's more like I put the blame equally on almost everyone involved. Fair enough. Fair enough. There is, you know, considering how dangerous everybody knew this was and how many corners were cut. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of culpability here. Yeah. Um, and that's just, un, it's, it's, it's insane. So following the 10 uh, month trial, a jury acquitted all five defendants in 1987. Uh, the families of the three victims filed uh, civil suits against Landis, Warner Brothers, and Twilight Zone co-director and producer Steven Spielberg that were settled out of court for undisclosed amounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the movie did come out in 1983 and yeah. did and, all right. Yeah. And I should point out, Spielberg got out of it because from what I understand, he, cut, he threw Landis under the bus. Yeah, their fa- their friendship was completely destroyed by this. They yes, it was destroyed. And again, I'm not saying like I understand the interpretation. And even look, as someone who likes a lot of his prior movies, even when I hear him in interviews, like he kind of rubbed me, he rubs me the wrong way just because he loves to talk and take over the conversation. But uh, I was so, when I was talking to Joshua, I'm like, I don't know if I could ever be like that. Like they were friends, and I feel like I don't know. Like the more I hear about certain Spielberg stories, the more I'm like. Did he really do this as a thing to do what was right or just to throw a friend out of the bus and get the fuck away from it mm. so that his, you know what I mean? Like, was it more selfish? And I go back to a lot, like, you know, I get it with the, like, I go back to the Tulsa guy scene, like, I get it. Toby Hoover ultimately didn't care. He just wanted to make movies, and that's awesome. But it's science that Spielberg could, to this very day, just fucking put those rumors to goddamn rest. 
and it'd be done and people stop arguing because I'm not going to argue with them coming out of the fucking person who worked on the movie's mouth. Um, I'd, I'd argue that at this point, and actually in the, like well into the 80s, Steven Spielberg was less of a man and more of a legend. You know what I mean? Like he had a mythology surrounding him that he's been cultivating his entire career. And the poltergeist thing and Twilight Zone, the movie, it's all part of this. Yeah. And I just know there's very few other directors that have that kind of like they're so ingrained in pop culture. They're barely human beings at this point. Right. Yeah. I think like Quentin Tarantino is another guy who comes to mind in the same vein. Yeah. Was, but, yeah. but Spielberg stands alone. <laughs> I mean, his name alone is yeah, synonymous kind of, with the blockbuster. It's weird. Yeah. And, and, and look, I've, I'm not trying to like diss on Spielberg. He has so many movies of his that I love. So I'm, this is not me trying to like just shit on Spielberg, but it's like moments like that where I'm like, you know, like just to cut your friend off like that so you look good. Even though if you were a producer on this movie, Spielberg, and you were helping direct it, guess what? You had just as much right to yell fucking cut, especially in the 80s when you were established and you were Steven Spielberg and you yeah. had that power. But no, and I'm not saying this is the right thing to do, but this is what I would imagine is Spielberg's thought process. E.T. is in theaters right now. Poltergeist, which has my name on it, is in theaters right now or will be in a few months. I'm prepping Indiana Jones 2. I cannot have three deaths associated with my name. So distance. Yeah. So like, yeah, I'm just like, that's just my, again, this is my personal, like just two cents on it and how I feel like, Spielberg kind of, I feel like he threw him on the bus and instead of like, you know, and no one wants to talk about like, he definitely could have played a part in stopping this from happening. Yeah. Um, another thing I always go, I also like to go back to and why I don't just blame Landis um, is um, his buddy, Mick Garris, I listen to his podcast. Um, just like both guys, he did, you know, he was there. He continues to actually talk to Landis and he made the same comment. He goes, you know, a lot of corners were cut, not just by Landis. Like he's very blunt. He's like, yeah, you know, he, you know, he got, you know, he got going to the things probably wasn't supposed to, but a lot of other people did too. He goes, there's a lot of people involved in that movie that did things that led to that moment. Um, the special effects supervisor, the guy doing the explosions, should have been paying attention that that helicopter was too fucking low to be sent off explosions, and yet he did it anyway. True, I agree. I also think of a great quote from A Bug's Life by Hopper, where he says, quote, first rule of leadership, everything is your fault. And Landis was the leader on this segment of the film. This was he ultimately was the guy who could have said, this looks too dangerous. We're not doing this. And he didn't. He, in fact, he was pretty goddamn adamant about doing this now and doing this his way. So I, I just think that. Yeah, there's blame to go around, but a lot of it, I think most of it lies with him. I just, I, I think it's better to spread equally because then at that point you have to start asking how does this apply to other films and blaming someone more directly in other films. Whereas films collaborative, like, yeah, there's probably going to be a go-to guy. But again, there's reasons there's checks and balances on set and so many different safety precautions to be taken. So, I mean, and, and look, I'm not, and look, I get where people are coming from with Linus again. His reputation precedes him. Um, and 
I know like a lot of people, like you mentioned earlier, like how he looks during the trial and stuff. I always say that sometimes people have a awkward way of showing their nervousness or anxiousness. It's like when someone makes a bad joke, it's actually them masking their nervousness. And that could have been what he was doing. Because, you know, he's facing some heinous charges and he doesn't know how to fucking handle it. And, um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we can, we can throw the blame around, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, though, and this is another thing I like to go back to, and a lot of people point out is that he's the one that has to live with it. You know, no, we don't. So, you know, I, I think that's why I, I try not to just come at him because it's like, at the end of the day, he's the one that lives with that fact, and he has to live with it till the day he dies. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's I reckon like people, people coming at Alec Baldwin, I'm like, leave the guy alone. Cause at the end of the day, he has to live with that and he has to deal with that until the day. Like, you, you know, it's easy for us to sit there on the outside and condemn someone. But when an accident of death like this happens, and it is whether it's entirely on your hands or a good chunk of it on your hands, you deal with it. You have, you have to be the one to mentally find a way to go on with life knowing what happened yeah i recommend uh this checking out the uh there's a mini series on shutter called cursed films that uh you recommended to me there's an episode on twilight zone the movie that interviews the production designer and uh stuntman kane hotter and some other people who have their um some things to say about this event uh trigger warning you are going to see the the actual footage of vic morrow and these kids death and it is horrifying and uncomfortable so be prepared for that yeah uh to the credit they only show it once it is for a purpose it's not to shock anyone yeah it's so you can see what happened but yeah i remember when i watched that i didn't know that they were going to put that in there and i, I had like a visible like moment well <laughs> i like yelled oh shit at the tv and like had a pause and like it's just it hit me so hard actually seeing it and yeah it's un it's it's unreal it's really just hard to describe and uh, hard to kind of keep in your head. Uh, but it, you can't talk about Twilight Zone, the movie without talking about this. It's impossible. So mm-hmm. I'm glad we were able to kind of just give our two cents and lay out the facts. And uh, yeah, there it is. So now that we've done that, let's talk about timeout. What do we like about this segment? What it ended up being? <laughs> I like that, uh, kind of like what I mentioned earlier, actually, with it feeling like Twilight Zone, but, you know, taking advantage of the movie aspects. This felt exactly like it, like it could have been on a, take away the, the racial slurs, it could have been a Twilight Zone episode. Like, you know, well, yeah, there's all, all this weird shit going on, but ultimately this is a story about, like, a racist gang has come up, it's a bigot gang has come up. It's... I love that you said, like, take out the... Slurs and it could be a Twilight Zone episode. And I'm like, this, this this thing came out in the late 50s. I mean, in America, slurs yeah, even, probably weren't a deal breaker. Well, I don't you can't say the N-word on TV. Isn't that kind of I, I know I'm I'm glad about that, but isn't that also kind of a surprise in the 50s? Right. People say it so freely to be, you know, assholes, but no, I can't say it on TV. Can't oh, go there. There's a silver lining. Ugh. Um yeah, I think it's a really smart, you know, idea. Uh, definitely plays up the social commentary that Rod Serling was known for. You know, racism, you know, you, you're going to be a racist. Well, you know, you're going to, what do you think it feels like? 
It's mm-hmm. really smart. And there is, you know, there's moments of that he has empathy where he's like, you can tell when his like when he gets put in the car and he sees the the Jews in the train car and he kind of has this look on his eyes like, I didn't know, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, and because of the way you know this ended up turning out, there is no redemption for this character. He just gets carted off to fucking Auschwitz, and that's it. Which, <laughs> which again, you know, with the knowledge of what went down. I actually prefer this ending because it does fit a Twilight Zone ending more than what whoever wanted that original ending uh, would have fit. I I agree. It is it's more of a a dark kind of sting on you. You know, it's like oh shit. I hope I'm not a racist. <laughs> Which, if you have to ask yourself, you, you probably are. <laughs> just just odds are, if you have to kind of take a momentary you know self-evaluation and think like am i a racist nine out of ten times yeah you are yeah (laughs) (laughs) gotta make this a little lighthearted again uh yeah so next segment kick the can uh directed by oscar-winning filmmaker steven spielberg who won his oscars for directing schindler's list and saving private ryan and is also responsible for directing almost every movie you loved as a child. He's Steven Spielberg. Uh, yeah. Kick the Can stars Scatman Crothers as the magical Mr. Bloom, who helps the residents of Sunnyvale Nursing Home find their lost youth and joy for life. You may remember him as Dick Halloran in The Shining. And this is the one segment I don't really care for. Yeah, it's, well, it's because it's kind of like, you know what, think about it, like, you know, my, my feelings on the movie Grindhouse. I don't really care for Tarantino segment because I just feel like he can't break out of his style to make the type of film I want in a Grindhouse movie. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, Rodriguez gave me what I want in a fucking Grindhouse movie. Um, same with this. It's like, you know, Spielberg obviously has a style. And we all love his style, but considering how the other segments all this one does stand out as like being different from the others. And um, it's because, again, Spielberg will not break us. I get it. I mean, I completely get it. I gave it with both these directors, Tarantino and Spielberg. But, again, kind of sit there and go, like, come on, man. Just break yourself once in anthology. Stretch yourself, man. Uh, well, I do have some uh, further information on this in the Filmgasm Facts, but I might as well bring it up here. Uh, he wasn't going to do this segment originally. He was going to do the, Maple, the uh, Monsters on Maple Street. But after the incident with Vic Morrow and all that went down, he wanted to bring a little bit of lighthearted softness to the movie. So he chose Kick the Can. Uh, can't blame him for that. I mean, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like I said, it does stick out. It's not like a terrible segment by any means, but I just like the other segments a lot more. Yeah, it's just kind of, you know, it's so tonally different from the other three segments that it's just kind of, like, honestly, you could skip it, which is unfortunate. You know, you wouldn't think the Steven Spielberg segment in the Twilight Zone movie would be the worst one. <laughs> yeah, I feel like had he been able, had he just gone with the original story, it would have probably been one of the best segments if you asked me, but oh well. Yep, them's a break. So I don't really have much more to say about Kick the Can. It's just, it's not my bag. It's, uh, I'm, I'm glad the other segments are so much better, or otherwise this would just be kind of, you know, um, yeah. yeah. Next up, It's a Good Life, directed by Joe Dante, who also directed Gremlins, 
The Howling, Inner Space, The Burbs, and Small Soldiers. One of the most underappreciated cult directors of all time, I think, Joe Dante. I'm glad got you a hell said, of a resume. Um, hmm? so I'm glad you said because I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I, The Burbs, Small Soldiers, fucking great movies. Uh, I don't think Gremlins is terrible. It's just not, you know, I like I Gremlins too, man. Cool. You son of a bitch. There's always this intense, like, momentary hatred every time I say something like that. Like, like you made it and, like, presented it to me as a gift. And I'm like, I don't even want this. And, like, just threw it away. That's how it feels. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I Gremlins is an acquired taste, I assume. I know it's a it's beloved really, movie. I couldn't really get it. So it's really not an acquired taste, but okay. It was for me. I, I was like, I think I wanted more. Or, I don't know. Go listen to my episode on Gremlins. I'm sure I gave out reasons on why I didn't care for it when we did it two years ago. I'm sure they want great reasons, but moving on. Um, I, they actually just today announced a 4K release of The Howling. I shot did. Yep, I don't like that movie either. Well, that's because you just don't know good movies, apparently. Well, apparently, according to you, I have to watch them twice or else I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm... One of you people is going to bring the howling to the show next year. I just fucking know it's going to happen. So I'll wait. <laughs> really uh, sure that mistake. And now you have to deal with me. I, I liked Texas Chainsaw 2 more on the second viewing. I didn't know that was going to fuck me for the rest of this podcast run. But here we are. Oh, yeah. It's going to fuck you. <laughs> oh, Joe Dante. So, It's a Good Life stars Oscar nominee Kathleen Quinlan as Helen Foley, who ends up trapped in a crazy house with a psychic child. Uh, She was nominated for her performance in 1995's Apollo 13, was also in The Doors, Breakdown, A Civil Action, and The Hills Have Eyes remake. So, there you go. Do you know that? Actually, no, I didn't. Who was she in The Hills Have Eyes remake? Probably the grandma. Especially, there was not a large cast, so... Uh, Well, here, let's find out. Hills. What grandma are you talking about? I don't know. Is there a grandma? That was, I think you're thinking, no, T. Wallace is in the original. Uh, <laughs> Kathleen Quinlan, 2006. Okay, here we go. Uh, Ethel Carter. Remember Ethel? Was she the mom, Ted Levine's wife? Yeah, retired detective Bob Carter and his wife, Ethel. Yep. She uh, had that horrific uh, scene in the, in, in the uh, trailer, which well, we can talk more of when we actually do the Hills of Advice and go through that doozy of a scene. Holy fuck, in both versions. I love your like reminiscent laugh. Like, oh yeah, I remember that horrific, horrible scene. Oh, good times. <laughs> it was a good time. It's a really intense scene. I actually really like it. That's uh, great. I, know, I always know how I sound like a monster like out loud or like what about the scene where like the thing comes in and like threatens to shoot a baby and rapes the women and kills them all? I'm like, yeah, it's a really intense, good scene. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, you monster! <laughs> oh, yep, yeah. Hard to kind of argue the position there, unless you're with a horror fan, in which case they're like, oh yeah, that was awesome. Got to, got to know your audience. Got to know your audience. Yeah. Uh, then we got Jeremy Licht as Anthony, the crazy psychic kid. He played Mark Hogan in 110 episodes of Valerie. Remember Valerie? No. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) 
one of those 80s sitcoms that was beloved for like five years and then no one ever talked about it again. Of course. Uh, <laughs> but the kid is unsettling as shit in this segment. The kid does a really good job. I buy that this kid has mastery over all of reality. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm... <coughs> Sorry, I put on my notes. <coughs> Evil kids always scary because of this fucker. <laughs> That's all, Ethel. Ugh. <laughs> Creepy. Oh, and the uh, his sister is Bart Simpson, by the way. Really? Yeah. <laughs> She's the voice of Bart Simpson, has been since 1989. <laughs> okay. It's kind uh, of amazing that that cast has never fucking shifted. Yeah. They may have to... I guess, like, look, they got that supernatural cast logic which is hey if it's paying us i'm staying on yeah that simpsons money has been keeping a lot of careers afloat for 30 years wow. it's you know it's it's good i like who doesn't like the simpsons I, it's comfort food like i won't i won't sit there and try to binge all 30 something seasons at this point but it's not something it's something i don't mind throwing on just just have playing Ever since it showed up on Disney Plus, I've been off and on on a binge. I'm in the ninth season, but I recently restarted after like a two year or like one and a half year uh, hiatus. This is one of those. After so many Simpsons, you get kind of you get you get yellow fever, and you kind of just want to be like, I need to I need to pull this off. I need a month or two without the Simpsons. You just start seeing the Simpsons everywhere. In life, anytime you look at porn, you're only looking at that one. You're like, oh, God, something's wrong. That's so weird. Simpsons porn. No, it exists. I know. It's kind of like like when you, that question, am I a racist? Usually means you're a racist. If you ever have to ask, is there a porn over this? There is. If you've had that thought, someone in the industry has had that thought, and they made that happen. (laughs) I don't know if I should be proud or disgusted both (laughs) uh yeah this i love the slow burn of this segment it just starts off with just a lot of weird stuff and a lot of people acting very strange just you know this super happy like leave it to beaver family who's like yeah anthony can have as much candy and cakes as he wants isn't it great don't you love it isn't it amazing just with this such fervor and the lady's like you people are nuts but she doesn't want to say it because she's too polite (laughs) And, and then you, you get the hint finally something's really amiss when they and to me this segment has some of the most like horrifying fucking imagery in the movie. But when uh she he shows her his sister in her room and he's just like, Yeah, she was an accident, the camera pans up and you see her mouth's like fucking shut. There is no mouth. <laughs> uh I love my favorite moment of like what the fuck is when. Helen goes up to see Anthony's room and the family's just standing there with her bag. And as soon as she leaves, they start digging in there like for anything, like I think for like real food or like a way to send help. And you're just like, what's going on here? Yeah. (laughs) It's great. You know what it reminded me of? You remember season three of Supernatural, the demon Lilith when she was a little kid? Oh, yeah. Totally borrowed from this. Oh, I had to. <laughs> I love that they bring up that this isn't even his real parents. <laughs> like, these are just some people he kidnapped. His real parents disappeared. Yeah. 
And it's just a hint of like, you know what this kid's capable of. So you're like, what do you do to his parents? The implication this one is like insane out of all the segments. Like the implications are terrifying. To quote Dennis, I'm always saying the implication here is strong. You can't say the word implication without bringing up Dennis. <laughs> I can't, especially because the new season premieres tomorrow. So it's like, oh, not tomorrow. But first, yeah, so in like two days. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Uh, sweet. <laughs> My favorite part about that discussion is it's the first time where Mac is like concerned. <laughs> when he's like, this is wrong. <laughs> no, but see when they're out there and they realize they can't go anywhere. They can say no, but they're not going to because of the implication. It's it's the way the, the emphasis he puts on that word. <laughs> this is he's a oh my god, I love it. Oh, that's such a strange show to explain to people who haven't seen it. <laughs> One of those shows where like you have to really look buckle up because you're gonna see some fucked up shit in this show, and it's all played for laughs. I have start I have gained so many friendships over just people who like that show. Is that shows to me that you have a hell of a sense of humor and we can connect. Yeah. I mean, look, the, like looking at the episode titles for the new season, man, they definitely got a sense of humor because, you know, Hulu made the big stink that they removed the Lethal Weapon episodes. So the second episode of this new season is the gang makes Lethal Weapon 7. Like, just the biggest fuck you to Hulu. Like, remove it now, assholes. You got to put it on here because there's a new episode. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love these guys. Um, all right. So I did. Lo- I, I loved when he um, he transports Ethel into cartoon world and like she gets killed. That was yeah. that was freaky. <laughs> that was freaky. And I, I think it goes without saying that the the hat trick was terrifying. <laughs> Holy God. Oh, if, if, and, that's going to probably be this episode's YouTube thumbnail, by the way. Just the fucking. R- rabbit well and the lead up to that is perfect like so it's like you're like why are they so scared what the fuck is going on and he pulls out the rabbit and that relief and you're like okay what why is everyone so fucking worried why is he relieved and then the fucking actual thing pops out i love the uncle's like hat trick oh, oh all right uh like where's the hat and he's like right on the tv and there was no hat on the tv <laughs> and you're just like oh okay this is getting hard. This is getting weird. Yeah. Fantastic. Good stuff. Perfect for Joe Dante. That rabbit is pure Dante. Yeah. Everything about the segment to me is just pure Dante. Like he's always, you know, we're talking when you talk underrated. What I like about his filmography and a lot of what he's done, he knows how to mix whimsy with fright very well. That's true. Um, he, he does it continuously because he, 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 he has a funny bone. He knows how to be like really funny. And then just fucking terrify you out of nowhere. And that's fully on display in his segment. Where the hell has he been? What has he been doing? He does a lot of, I think he's, he doesn't really direct a whole lot now. Um, but I know he did bearing the X a while back. And he does the circuits. He's always usually doing the circuits with the horror conventions and stuff. He's always, he's always on the documentaries and stuff like he's been in the in search of darkness series he's been on both parts i'm sure he'll be in part three so i mean he he still does stuff i just he, i think he's slowed down the directing kind of got one foot in retirement at this point yeah that's a shame 
he's definitely a unique filmmaker. Mm. I know he's teased a possible Gremlins 3, but like so much uh, stuff has been like stopping that from happening. That I don't think it's they've been talking about Gremlins 3 since 92. Like it's I don't know. It it will probably happen at some point, but I don't think Joe Dante is gonna be the guy to do it. No, I don't I think now he just probably isn't that interested in doing it. Yeah. Um finally, the piece de resistance, nightmare at twenty thousand feet by Oscar nominee George Miller, director of the Mad Max franchise, among a few other films, but that's his coup de gras. And uh, holy fuck, does he end this thing on a high note? <laughs> this is, it's for me, it's the best segment. I don't know about you, but this is this is the best. To me, uh, it's, it's hard because it really is a tie with the segment we just talked about between this one and that segment are my, as being my favorites. I will say this is my favorite my my preferred most favorite version of this tell i with william shatner's on the original series being right behind it and then the as much as i like jordan pill his take on it like way down there i just did not get into that take um for me though like it's john lithgow who makes this thing work so well i believe his performance every second just a you know nervous flyer sees a monster it's so simple but he does it so well yeah to me it's john lithgow and the way george miller utilizes the creature which you can kind of see the hints of mad max in how he utilizes that creature you can see it um but how he does that thing and like obviously you know the big moment that they were going to do because it's in the original show so you know he opens the fucking window it's right fucking there that thing holy god if you're not prepared, that's probably that's one of the best fucking jump scares because holy fuck is that a terrifying moment. I I think I first saw this movie when I was like 13 or 14. And I'd had my mom told me, like she told me about the Dan Aykroyd thing. She didn't say shit about the gremlin. <laughs> and when I first saw this, I fucking leapt. That scared me so bad. And it still just it sends a shiver down my spine every time I see it. That thing is gnarly. Like that's a fucking monster. <laughs> yeah, it enough can't be said for like the creature works in this in this entire movie because uh, I, I we didn't mention it last thing but when he brings that cartoon to life and that fucked up Tasmanian devil like my god like here we're I I need to look it up I should have done my research but here's the makeup effects like holy fuck outstanding work in this movie. I do want to point out, I love that she just, uh, in the previous segment, that she just fucking backs into the kid on his bicycle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just unceremoniously, just like, bong. I, and he's like, no biggie. She runs into the most powerful kid in existence, and he's like... Well, it, it's implied that that was part of the plan. That's how yeah. he was able to get her. That's Oh, yeah, that's true. I thought she was just careless, and he didn't, he didn't seem to mind. That makes no. way more sense. <laughs> I did think the ending was like, holy shit, that's how we're ending this? When she's like, like siding with them and to help teach them. I'm like, fuck, was I expecting you to end it like that? And then what really could matter was like, when she asked, what everyone else going? She, he's like, what they want away from me. And I'm thinking, what did you do with the others? Because they're not back in their normal lives there, buddy. As Benny from The Mummy once said, it is better to be the right hand of the devil than in his path. Boom. Yeah, but Benny still died, so. Yeah, because he was an idiot. He betrayed his friends. (laughs) 
We have the horses. You're on the wrong side of the river. Think of my children. You don't have any children. Someday I might. <laughs> oh, beautiful. I never miss an opportunity to bring up the mummy, even when it has nothing to do with whatever we're talking about. <laughs> movie, God damn it. <laughs> uh, so Oscar nominee John Lithgow plays John Valentine, a terrified flyer who sees a vicious monster on the wing of his plane. Lithgow was nominated for his performances in 1982's The World According to Garp and 1983's Terms of Endearment. In addition to his fantastic work on TV shows like Dexter, The Crown, Perry Mason, and Third Rock from the Sun, Lithgow has also appeared in such films as Cliffhanger, The Accountant, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Interstellar, and Harry and the Hendersons. He is considered one of the nicest men in Hollywood and is one of my all-time favorite performers. I've seen so much of his work. He's one of those guys that always brings a smile to my face whenever I see him on screen. And uh, yeah, he delivers. Uh, But I think the star of this segment is Jerry Goldsmith, who delivers one of the most frightening scores in film history. (laughs) I I think to me, like everything about this segment just works. Like from the score, the John Lithgow, to like a very claustrophobic feeling throughout. Because, you know, it's it's in an airplane. You can't fucking go anywhere when you're in a fucking airplane. And like they they really hammer home on that feeling. Like, and then the chaos too. Like George Miller, the man knows how to film chaos. Because there's like I'm, I remember the, like the scene when like he's freaking out, and then that big dude that turns out to be the FA agent, he just yeah. grabs the girl out of nowhere and like takes her, and you're just like so much shit's going on. You just kind of see it, pressure it, and you move on. Like Miller's just such a fucking master. Just like we'll put all the shit on screen at once and really you're going to you're going to register all of it but you're not going to question it you're just going to keep moving on well i love that you know he shows you the the gun on the ankle holster he shows you the oxygen tank he shows you the kid's polaroid and then all of that comes into play a little bit later in him trying to t- fucking break the window <laughs> and then when the gremlin just like comes up to him and like puts its hand on his face and does that like uh 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 kind of finger motion God, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like it knows. Oh, no one's going to believe you, buddy. Yeah, like I could kill you right now, but it's so much more fun to just watch you suffer for the rest of your life telling this story no one's going to believe. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that, yeah. like, I want to point out, the fact that he survived the, that plane landing, like, holy God, like, he was out on the fucking, God knows how high that altitude was. <laughs> I want to just throw a shout out to maybe the greatest, most talented pilot in movie history who landed that bird in a lightning storm with an engine out and a broken window. <laughs> well done, man. <laughs> That's amazing. He got, he got rewarded with uh, some flight attendants in the hotel room later. Maybe. I don't know. I'm basing Not that all night. This everyone was fucking terrified. <laughs> Look, I'm basing all this off the movie flight. And apparently pilots are banging flight attendants. So. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're, you go to, you know, you travel that many places. You're a rock star. You got that uniform. You got that big vehicle. Yeah. That makes sense to me. <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. You want to get laid all the time, be a pilot. <laughs> good advice. We're just throwing out all sorts of good advice today. Uh, I do want to point out something really cool. You said you've never seen uh, Third Rock from the Sun, right? Right. There's an episode where uh, John Lithgow's boss like the king of the universe shows up uh in town and it's william shatner and uh william shatner says 
I had a great flight, but there was something on the wing of my plane. It was so strange. And John Lithgow goes, the same thing happened to me. <laughs> they have this moment. And it was so cool. <laughs> See, it is cool. I'm so, when you do something like that, Marvel with the Eternals, I'm so mad that like, fucking uh. John Snow, <laughs> Rob Stark, no fucking joke whatsoever. I'm like, God damn it. Two people who are constantly saying the name Cersei and there's never anything. Nothing. <laughs> All because Marvel for once wanted to make the most serious Marvel film they ever committed to. And I was like, God damn it, just make a quip. Make a quip right here. I said it on our sneak preview. I'll say it again. I still resent that there was never a no shit Sherlock joke between Downey and Cumberbatch. <laughs> there was an opportunity there in Infinity War and they didn't take it. <laughs> no. Ah, but... Third Rock did. He took, he took the moment. And earlier, like in the first season, when Dick gets on an airplane for the first time, he does have the, oh my God, there's something on the wing moment. And Mary's like, that's an engine. Sit down. <laughs> He's like, this is a death trap. And he drags her off the plane. <laughs> you would fucking love Third Rock, man. Uh, there's so many moments, like so many references to all sorts of sci-fi and horror. It's, it's great. Uh, there's an episode where Kathy Bates plays a uh, his number one fan. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they don't even try to hide it. <laughs> no, I um, actually ever watch Hollis in the whole way through. I watch Survivor from the Sun. <laughs> all right. That's like, it's like six seasons, by the way. I will get to it eventually. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, I love the way this film is bookended. We end with the. Uh, John Lithgow getting taken away in an ambulance and the midnight special starts playing again. And it's, it's our good friend, the hitchhiker. who's like, Hey, had a bit of a scare up there, huh? You want to see something really scary? And the music kicks in and that's it. It's like, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a good way to wrap it up. And yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I hear it all the time in anthology films. People always hate the fucking wraparound story. Like it's usually the biggest, like constant thing you hear with these anthology films. Yeah. Um, other than you know, obviously some stories just don't work as well as others. It just comes with the territory. Um, I think the way they did this one was smart. They had like you know that opening part where had nothing really to do with the movie. It just had that fucking scare, you know, scare scene with you know very famous comedians, and then they just wrap it up by having him pop up again, and it works because when you think about like Twilight Zone, Rod Serling would pop up at the beginning of the show say his speech and then he'd pop up at the end have his uh, closing monologue and the show would end so it it also feels again getting to that Twilight Zone spirit here's someone that pops up at the beginning and pops up at the end yeah it's awesome uh, this is yeah I think this is the only anthology film I've ever seen where the wraparound story actually does work I think the entire VHS franchise never got that right Creep Show didn't uh, really pull it off that well but Twilight Zone, the movie, fucking nailed it. Yeah, I'll still take Creepshow. Actually, I will say I'll put Creepshow's wraparound behind Twilight Zone. I think theirs works pretty well compared to most. It's not bad. It's just not nowhere near as memorable as the rest of the movie. Oh, no, no, not at all. I still think the best, I, I, hey, I still stand by it. Director Treat probably did it the best where they didn't even worry about wraparound. It's just like, this is all on the same night. We're just going to keep moving the stories around so you still get that anthology feel, but it's not really anthology and I don't know. The way they do it in Trick or Treat is still my favorite way. Yeah. But I fucking adore that movie, as we all know. I know. I, I like that one. So don't 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 come at me. 
Um, three filmgasm facts. Number one, this is eerie as shit. I don't know if this is true, but if it is, good God. Um, as Vic Morrow was waiting to film what would turn out to be the scene that killed him, he allegedly said to a production assistant, quote, I must be out of my mind to be doing this. I should have asked for a stunt double. What can they do but kill me, right? Uh, while he was filming Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, 1974, he insisted on having a $1 million life insurance policy before he would shoot any scenes involving the helicopter in which he was due to ride. He was very insistent, and when asked why, Morrow allegedly replied, quote, I have always had a premonition I was going to die in a helicopter crash. The fuck? I, saying that just gave me goosebumps. That's weird. Yeah. Ugh. Rest in peace, Vic Morrow and those two kids. <clears throat> yeah. I know we, we didn't really mention that in uh, the thing other than like when I was talking about like, you know, what John Lewis has to live with. But yeah, you know, RIP to Vic Morrow, you know, at the end of the day, you know, no film is worth dying for. You know, it's kind of like how I tell people like, uh, you know, I like I got PS5, right? I, I love my PlayStation. I'm not going out there into the fucking Black Friday deals that happen on the streets trying to get my hands on one to turn around and get like shot or stabbed by someone that wants it more than I do. Because at the end of the day, as much as I love games, as much as I love movies, it's not worth dying for. There's very little in your life that's worth your life. And I love like in the Cursed Films bit, I love Lloyd Coffin's bit of like, we have three rules, like, you know, no endangerment to property, no endangerment to people and make a good movie. And that one's smaller because at the end of the day, we're just making movies and it's not worth our lives. Like every director in Hollywood should have that, like, yeah. you know, tattooed to their it's, fucking forehead. It's, it's amazing how many more bigger or I don't want to say bigger, but more well-known, if you will, directors don't live by that. But the guy that's had to essentially like fight to maintain the indie spirit of trauma for 40 plus years. Um, and, you know, people have their feelings about him and their views on trauma films. And yet for him, it's all about safety. I'm just, I have to point that out. It's like very interesting. Like, you know, for him, he's, you know, because Kaufman is a generally good guy. It is about safety. Yeah. He wants to make a good movie, but he wants people to be safe. Actually, I love when they did that segment that they were clearly doing while he was filming, I think, a Shakespeare shitstorm or one of his more one of his upcoming films, because he's like in full like drag for his part in the movie while he's talking about it. Yeah, he's a ridiculous man, but his heart's in the right place. And I, I respect what he does. Uh, I never knew shit about trauma until Josh introduced it to me with the Toxic Avenger. And uh, now there now I you know i'm sure there's gonna be more movies oh yeah we'll have a fun time i've seen my first share there's still more i need to see that i want to see uh number two this is i already talked about this the monsters are due on maple street spielberg's original plan but he wanted to do something lighter after the uh fatalities and with fewer special effects so as not to incur any more potential trouble so kick the can well i don't care for this for the segment i get why he did it and uh yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I'll I'll take that over like kind of how he threw on a bus to save his own face. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get I get his reasonings. I I understand. I would have preferred to just go ahead because I felt like he could have done 
of Monsters on Maple Street without that much special effects, like, or that much, like, any, like, the original segment is just people on the street freaking out, like, I don't see where you needed a lot of special effects to make that work, Spielberg, but I, again, I get the reason. Um, <laughs> it is still, to me, compared to the other three segments, it is the weakest. It definitely, like, it feels slightly out of place compared to the other three segments still. True. And uh, this just made me laugh. Number three, at a promotional event for his autobiography, John Lithgow was asked by a fan about the fate of his character in the last segment. He replied that, in response to the driver's question of, you want to see something really scary, he would simply have said no. And Dan Aykroyd's ambulance driver would have just shrugged and taken him to the hospital. <laughs> I, I kind of would have liked to see that. He's just like, no, that's okay. And he's like, mm, all right. Just... Yeah, like that that's the whole thing with that demon. It needs you to say yes. And if you say no, he just goes, All right, like no hard feelings or anything, like not even mad at you, like, eh, all right, I, I I tried. Okay, I asked a question, I did my part. You said no, respect. Stay to the hospital, buddy. Oh uh, yeah. But also, you know, not a great question to ask someone who just has been through, you know, an, an almost plane crash. <laughs> he's I think he's been scared enough for the rest of his life. Um, I give Twilight Zone the movie an eight. It's, it's it's a little hard to watch knowing three people died during the making of it, but I do think the film deserves a life of its own beyond that. Like I said, George Miller and Joe Dante had nothing to do with it, and their segments are worth watching. So, move at the end of the day, the work is the work, and you've got to separate the actions of the men responsible for the work from the work. Yeah, um, I I agree. I would also give this film an eight. It really does evoke the spirit of the series. Well, obviously being allowed to go a little bit further um, because of time and it being maybe all that good stuff. Um, and I think each director, even Spielberg's, you know, he made, made my least favorite segment, but he still brings something special to the movie. They all bring something to it. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to sit there and also, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So like, I'm with you. Like I, if you can get past the tragedy of what happened and it's definitely hard because, you know, you, you know, in, of the three victims, two of them were children. That's always something hard. Um, but like you said, you know, you gotta, the work should be able to live on. And you, as a consumer, should just have that option to be like, I don't wanna watch it because of what happened. That's perfectly fine. But for those of us that do, you should have the option to be able to watch it. Um, yeah. I am glad that at least you can stream it. I know it's on Prime, you can rent it. Sucks that it's hard to get the physical copy. But, you know, at least it is there. And uh, like I said, if you can get past that, it is a really good movie that if you're a fan of Twilight Zone, I think you'll like this. Yeah, well said. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you like the show. If you like what we do, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Filmgasm Productions. You can email us at filmgasm at gmail.com for suggestions, feedback. Always, you can send us a message <laughs> on socials. Uh, if you want to support the show through Anchor, you can always click on support this podcast on your preferred podcast provider. We appreciate any donations, but as always, not necessary. We hope you enjoyed this one. This has been a long time coming on this podcast. So I'm glad we were finally able to tackle this movie. Uh, next week is our last 80s movie, or at least two weeks, we promise. Uh, this one comes from the elusive book of Filmgasm, our endless list of random potential episodes. And it's a dark fantasy classic I've been meaning to watch for years. 
A 16-year-old girl's little brother is kidnapped by a goblin king, and she has 13 hours to solve his elaborate maze and save him. David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly star in Jim Henson's 1986 cult classic, Labyrinth. Uh, never seen it before, but I'm excited to finally watch it. Uh, how about you, Labyrinth? Nope. I haven't. I actually haven't seen it. Um, it's been on my and it's been on my radar. Um, I've heard a lot of people. I know a lot of people fucking adore this movie. Um, so I'm going to watch it, even if like Josh is like, "Hey, I want to do the episode." I'll still. I mean, we live together anyway, so it's not like it's hard. Um, I'll still watch it because it's definitely been on my radar to watch nonetheless. So, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about Jim Henson on this podcast, the man who made the Muppets. So it's going to be a bit of a lighthearted, like at least more so than this one, episode next week. Uh, thank you to the book. Uh, don't miss Home Alone on Oscar Sunday or The Power of the Dog on Monday's sneak preview. Until then, don't endanger your coworkers and never put the value of a movie above the value of human life. What you can always do, though, is keep watching movies. Thank you.